Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Top Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That was not a very fun Toronto Blue Jays game last night. I'm a little cranky today. Uh, 11 to 6, the Jays lose. It was not that close in spirit. Uh, This one was more or less done in the third inning when Chris Bassett allowed his second home run of the game and then his third home run of the game, a grand slam to Gunnar Henderson. The Jays fall down 8-1 in the third inning. Long climb back up from there. I I know I just did the thing on Sunday where I tweet out, hey, the Jays haven't scored this many runs in a game very often, and then they came back and did it in that one. An 8-1 deficit, pretty striking, especially in a ballpark that, uh, except when the Jays are there apparently, uh, plays pretty pitcher friendly. That was a tough one to come back from. And I think what it highlights, look, when you're the guy who's technically your number two starter right now, when he has a bad game like that, when he's not able to, to locate some of his stuff. And I actually thought the first two home runs he gave up were pretty good pitches. They were both sliders that, you know, could have been the, the first one. That's the swing and miss spot that that's a chase spot. And you just reach down and it was Adam Frazier for that one. You just reach down and kind of golf it over the fence. That's a, that's a tough one to be too, too upset about. It was a well-placed pitch in a, you know, a Chris Bassett count. And then the second one was the home run to Ryan O'Hearn. And again, it was a slider low, probably one that he would have liked back to drop it a little lower below the zone or maybe not have it cut back in um, to catch that much of the plate, but it was a pretty well-located pitch. And Chris Bassett said as much after, um, but the grand slam to Gunnar Henderson was a very bad pitch. And there is a pattern there now of Chris Bassett struggling to execute at times against left-handed hitters. He has monster platoon splits on the season. That was true entering yesterday's game. And that's an Orioles team that between switch hitters and lefties had six lefties in the lineup. They teed off on Chris Bassett again, three home runs, eight earned runs over three innings. Uh, You get in a hole like that. It's tough to come back. And it's especially tough to come back when you're a team that itself has struggled with the long ball, which the Toronto Blue Jays have done. And that's not just a product of struggling to hit for home runs at home where the new Rogers center uh, dimensions skew pitcher friendly so far. This is a team that has struggled to hit home runs for the entirety of the season so far. They're supposed to be, and I know they traded in some of the, the boomer bus home run power for more versatility in how you win games, how you produce your runs, um, how you prevent runs so that there are more paths to winning games. All of that is still reasonable strategically, but you're down to 12th in the league in home runs. And when you play in a division like the American League East, where opponents can rack up offense pretty quickly, it takes a lot longer to single and double and productive out your way out of an eight, one hole than it does to hit a couple home runs on, on your route. And, you know, I mentioned the, the home run total, the Jays are in 12th. They're in 18th when it comes to home run per fly ball rate. So even when you get the ball in the air, how often does it get out? Uh, The Jays below league average in that regard. And I don't think that's something that even having traded away to Oscar Hernandez and Lourdes Gurriel jr. You look at the personnel and you think they should be, a little better in that regard. John Schneider kind of spoke about it after the game and saying that you can't be too upset with how the offense looked overall. They, they did produce a lot of hits in that game. They had 15 hits. They had a, a trio of walks and they managed six runs. Now um, that's not 
perfect context. They went five of 16 with runners in scoring position, for example, but they also started the game one for eight. And maybe if you can put a little more pressure on Dean Kramer early, this is the second start in a row where they face Dean Kramer and they've gotten a ton of contact against them, but haven't been able to bring uh, many runners across. In fact, over two starts, Dean Kramer's allowed 17 hits and 19 base runners to the Blue Jays. And only three of those have come around to score. So that is, you know, John Schneider's right that there are two elements to this. And one is that the Jays generated a lot of hits and being able to hit a lot of singles, hit a lot of doubles uh, is, is good offense, right? Like they're being a top five team in batting average and on base percentage. Those things are important. When you get down eight to one though, as John Schneider said, especially when you're sputtering a little bit, having a couple scrape over the wall can go a long way to getting you right. Kevin Biggio did eventually hit a home run in the eighth inning. It was part of a, kind of fake comeback in the eighth and the ninth that the Jays put together to at least put a little pressure on the Orioles bullpen. Um, there was the Biggio home run. Santiago Espinal walked and came around to score. And then in the ninth, you had the leadoff trio of Nathan Lucas, Ernie Clement and Kevin Biggio uh, starting things off and, uh, you know, producing what, what would become a, a two run inning at one point, the base is loaded with two outs uh, brought the tying run into the on deck circle not really anything to write home about there, except for the fact that the Orioles had to use four bullpen arms. So that's maybe a, a slight positive uh, there. Um, we've got obviously a, a Jays heavy show today because it is Jays talk plus, but just a small note here as, as we sort through the trickle down from yesterday's introduction of Darko Ryakovich as the new head coach of the Toronto Raptors. And, and we're going to talk to Dallas green today of Alexis on fire and city in color. And I have a feeling he's going to want to steer that conversation more toward uh, Raptors given the, the news of this week. But uh, Adrian Wojnarowski reporting that um, Rico Hines is pivoting uh, from the Toronto Raptors to join Nick nurse's staff with the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, we'll hear a lot over the next couple weeks about Raptors assistant coach additions. Um, Anyway, that's just a, a little bit of a, a news note there. And we'll get Dallas's take on that around 1035. Um, Dallas, of course, had a, a relationship with Nick Nurse. Also a massive Blue Jays fan, though. Um, Alexa on fire playing Bud Stage this Friday. We talked to Steve Slykowski of Pup yesterday. We'll talk to Dallas Green today, which I'm very excited about. Um, later in the show, we've also got Keegan Matheson joining us fresh off a trip to Nova Scotia. Ben Verlander of the Flippin' Bats podcast and, and Fox Sports uh, will join us around 1130. And Joe is going to join us in a few minutes here. So we do have a, a pretty big show to sort through an 11-6 to loss that dropped the Blue Jays to 6-16 six and 16 in the American league East. Now as Chris black at down to black and our regular Tuesday guest points out on Twitter right now, only the Oakland athletics have lost more games in division than the Toronto blue Jays on the season. The Jays fall to six and 16. The, the athletics are four and 23, but don't look now they've won seven in a row. They're almost out of the basement in the major league baseball standing. So uh, that's a fun little story. We'll talk to Ben Verlander about that uh, and the anti boycott that they had in Oakland last night. Speaking of the standings, the loss to Baltimore puts the Jays now back six games behind them. Um, of course, 10 games back of the Tampa Bay Rays at the top of the division. And the Baltimore Orioles sitting pretty right now as far as wild card spots 
go. They are four games up on the Yankees, four and a half up on the Astros. Um, the Angels have jumped the Blue Jays now, so uh, there are extra teams in that mix there. That'll be something fun to talk to Ben Verlander about as well because uh, there's nobody who's a Shohei Otani guy like Ben Verlander's a Shohei Otani guy, and the Angels are actually winning some ball games now, uh, which is a lot of fun. So um, Jays continue to, to try to swim through a tough position standings-wise, a tough position in terms of having – Offensive pieces that, that are able to hit for average, able to post a good OBP, still a, a top five team by WRC plus uh, on the season. But they've had some trouble coming through in big situations. They're a bottom 10 team in terms of hitting with runners in scoring position. Um, they have obviously just not scored a ton of runs in general. They are um, 12th in the league in runs per game. And even if you've, you're getting good pitching, which the Jays have gotten a little bit more often than maybe you'd expect having heard a Alec Manoa is down in the Florida complex league. Now um, you, you need more offense from this group. And I know that that's weird to say a day after they allowed 11 runs and it was an 11, six final. Um, it's true. Chris Bassett, giving up eight over three would have had you in a big hole that even if the bats were really going that day and you had some power, that that's a tough game to win. And it's a tough game to take away, but they never really threatened it. And if there was more coming through and, and there was a little more confidence in the pop in this lineup right now, maybe that game would have felt a little differently at the end of the third inning, instead of feeling like it was already over and it was just a matter of getting through the next five or six innings uh, without burning too many arms. Speaking of arms, Jays used Bowden Francis, Mitch White, Thomas Hatch to cover those extra five innings. Um, that is probably some version of what Saturday looks like when the Jays are projected to have a bullpen day. We'll see if needing to use those guys today results in any sort of uh, roster move for extra length in the bullpen. I think they'd at least be comfortable that they didn't have to use any of their medium or high leverage arms in that game. So, uh, you know, we're reaching for positives here a little bit, and we're going to talk to Joe Siddle about whether at the individual level players can reach for positives in a game like last night, because there were some decent individual performances around uh, that terrible game, such as Kevin Biggio having the pinch hit home run and another single as he remains in a tiny sample, one of the hottest hitters on the Blue Jays over the last couple of weeks. Uh, again, with a, a Chris Black stat here over the last three weeks, Kevin Biggio has the best average on base and slugging uh, on the team. Again, small ish samples doing it mostly as a, as a pinch hitter or a, a depth fill in, but uh, but Kevin Biggio in the opportunities uh, he's been getting able to have some uh, some success there. Maybe to the extent that you could argue he is deserving of more playing time moving forward. That could be relevant because the other news from yesterday was that Brandon Belt hit the injured list. He's dealing with that hamstring strain. John Schneider, and I'm paraphrasing here, said uh, if Brandon Belt were 25, maybe he's able to uh, play through that, but he's 35, so they're not going to push it right now. The corresponding move for that was Ernie Clement, getting called up. He filled in as a, as a defensive replacement for Boba Shett at shortstop yesterday late in that game and did get one plate appearance hit into a fielder's choice that very nearly could have been uh, a game ending double play or not a game ending double play, but a, a double play nonetheless at that point. So um, Ernie Clement up Brandon belt to the IL. The other moves that we saw yesterday, Tyler Heineman was optioned to triple a Buffalo because Danny Jansen is back and off of the IL. He started at the catcher position, tough one, 0 for 5 with four strikeouts uh, in that one. But good to have Danny Jansen back regardless. And I mentioned that Bowden Francis pitched 
out of the bullpen. He gave the team two innings, allowed two earned on four hits, one home run, and a pair of strikeouts. He was back up because Adam Simber was placed on the paternity list. And the Jays then get the, you know, normally if a, if a pitcher sent down to the minors, they have to stay down there for 15 days before they can be recalled unless someone gets hurt or goes on the paternity list. So Bowden Francis back up. And to answer a question that we, we'd run into a couple of times yesterday, Bowden Francis does not necessarily have to be the guy that goes back down when Adam Simber's paternity stint is up, which uh, is Friday at the latest. Um, we're having a little trouble connecting with Joe Siddle here, so so I'll keep rolling. Um, a couple other things from that game. If you're looking for small positives, I mentioned the Kevin Biggio of it, seeing Danny Jansen back in the lineup, but Alejandro Kirk started at DH with Danny Jansen back in catching. Kirk had a three-hit day coming through with three RBI single, the third of which was not very impressive. He dribbled it down the third baseline with the bases loaded. Uh, it Ended up scoring a run and he got the first okay, kind of a, a swinging bunt. But hey, that's only fair because there was a um, there was a swinging bunt of sorts that that led to one of the big Chris Bassett innings uh, as well. A, a kind of fifty mile an hour dribbler that that Chris Bassett did the Back to the Future guitar slide across his knees, uh, trying to come up with it and just couldn't, and, and that kind of helped lead to a big inning. For Baltimore. So Alejandro Kirk, three for five, three RBI singles. The other two were pretty well hit. Um, Dalton Varsho also had a three hit day, a pair of doubles, a walk, and a single. Um, by the way, I mentioned the Jays are six and 16 in division. That is on pace, by the way, to be the worst record in division in franchise history. That's a 273 win percentage. They have never been that bad in the division before. So if it feels exceptionally bad, that is because it is. It's real bad. Um, continuing through last night's game. So there are a couple positives on, on the hitter side. Um, and we'll talk to Joe Siddle when we're able to connect with him, if we're able to connect with him about, you know, can you, when you're down 11 to two or, or you're down eight to one, are you able to mentally pivot and focus on finding some small individual wins? Obviously everyone on that team is, is going to come out of that game feeling badly about the, the 11, six loss. And once again, losing a game in division, uh, once again, losing the Baltimore Orioles, but can Dalton Varshall build on that? Can Alejandro Kirk build on that? Can Kevin Biggio build on that? The other name you might be wondering if they can build on it is Mitch White. It wasn't particularly sharp, but he gave up one run over two innings. Given what his first appearance had looked like, given what all of his AAA rehab appearances had looked like, that is, and this is a low bar, but that's uh, that's progress. That's moving in the right direction there for Mitch White. Thomas Hatch also uh, gave an almost clean inning. He, he walked a batter. He did need 22 pitches to get through it, but he's a guy who continues to look relevant, in the bullpen for the Blue Jays, um, that changeup's pretty good. He had a pair of strikeouts in his two innings. Um, and then Bowden Francis, again, two earned over two innings, not quite as sharp as last time out on Saturday. And within those two strikeouts that he had, maybe on the fortunate side when it came to Ron Culpa's strike zone, which uh, was all over the place. Uh, yesterday and that benefited the Jays at times that hurt the Jays at times mostly it was just it's one of those things where if that was a close game I think everyone would have been tweeting about it and I would have been losing my mind at, at the strike zone moving all over the place but given that it wasn't a particularly close game and a lot of those calls may have been that ah, let's just get home at a reasonable time calls it was amusing to watch a, a strike zone that was that amoebic it was just kind of flowing all over the place um, anyway Ron Culpa we, we've had conversations on this show and on fan drive time when, when I was co-hosting with Ben Ennis about how we move 
home plate umpiring toward a more effective environment. And one of the things that the data shows, and if you look at the leaderboards of who the most accurate ball and strike call guys are, it's uh, it skews young. If you're in your mid to late 30s, even your early 40s, uh, you tend to be much better at those ball and strike calls. And and look, even the the worst of major league umpires have like a 92, 93% accuracy rate on ball and strikes. It's a very hard job that even the the worst among the league do a pretty good job of. But Ron Kalpa at 54 years old is on the lower end of accuracy over the last couple of years. So looking ahead to tonight, it'll be Jose Barrios against Kyle Bradish. Uh, the Jays have seen a lot of Kyle Bradish over the course of the last year and a half. Um, he's someone that, you know, not exactly the same pitcher as Dean Kramer, but in that same kind of mold of you might be able to string some hits together. You're going to have to do some hitting with runners in scoring position. He's someone that, you know, both his fastball and curveball have a lot of spin on it. So you're going to see a big break to the curveball. You're going to see the fastball spin, give it that kind of rising feel um, in to the higher parts of the zone. And then he'll also mix in a slider curveball sinker change up with some regular, the change up mostly to, to lefties, the sinker, mostly to righties as you might expect there. Um, so that's tonight. We'll look ahead to that a little later in the show. Um, let's take a, a closer look at last night's game. Joe Siddle of Sportsnet joins us now, Joe, before we talk about last night's game, I know this was a, a big weekend for you and your family. It was the Kevin Siddle Bantam baseball invitational in Windsor. Uh, how did that go? How, how special is that event for you guys year to year? Well, it's certainly near and dear to our hearts, Blake. We actually, my wife and I, have nothing to do with it. Um, the, the organizers and all of our friends that run the Windsor Stars organization now after I left years back do a fantastic job. And they asked us several years ago that uh, they would love to do this tournament and do it in Kevin's name. And uh, we chose the charities where the money was going to go, and they've done a fantastic job. The odd year I'm off, last year I was off, and we would go over and watch some games and take part a little bit, but uh, wasn't able to do that this year. But, yeah, I think it was a smashing success again, and it's always always near and dear to our hearts. Yeah, and the, you mentioned the, the organization's Child Canna and Ronald McDonald House, so it's very nice to see from afar uh, Kevin's memory can continued on like that uh, in a baseball way. Um, so, Joe, last night, uh, the Jays, not, not a great one. Let's start with Chris Bassett. He has struggled now with the home run a, a handful of times this season. He's fifth in the league in home runs allowed with 15. His teammate, Yusei Kikuchi, of course, sitting in first place there. Um, what did you, you see from him last night? And in particular, these home run struggles for Bassett have really seemed to come disproportionately against left-handed hitters. What is it that he hasn't been able to execute against lefties so far? Well, we went into the broadcast last night saying Brandon Hyde has six lefties in there, and I'm sure we'll see it again tonight against Barrios because he's very similar <clears throat> Excuse me, in that regard. And, uh, you know, I think the cutter's been such a good pitch for Chris, and I don't think it was a great pitch last night. And, I mean, the one thing that stands out to me, and it kind of really broke the game open, of course, when Gunnar Hedrison hit the grand slam, but walking Mateo and throwing all the cutters and sliders to the number nine hit, I mean, you know, Blake, I, that stuff drives me batty. And if I'm Chris Bassett with his sinker, go after the guy. Throw your sinkers and make him beat you with his bat. He dribbled one up the third baseline his first time up on a fastball sinker down in the zone. Like, just go get that guy. You almost have to treat that lineup turning over now like Aaron Judge is coming up because Gunnar Henderson is locked in. 
And, you know, sometimes it's when you play a guy, when, when who's hot, who's not. Right now, you do not want to see that guy with anybody on any traffic on base. So I thought the way they pitched to Mateo, I, I didn't like that at all, walking him on the breaking pitches to get to Henderson. And even the... The Fraser home run, I heard Chris's quotes after the game about having to see some video and, you know, I I'll, I'll, thought he made some pretty good pitches. And, you know, sometimes you watch a home run and you say, oh, that was a pretty good pitch. How did he hit it? But at the same time, I, I remember looking at O'Hearn's home run, and, of course, that at the time I think made a 4-1, mm-hmm. and that, which is a big blow. But, yes, it was a, a one slider down and away, and you look, wow, how did he hit that? Well, it's not always the pitch that he hit because to me as a catcher, I'm always thinking sequencing and how we set this hitter up and how have you gotten to this point? Well, he had just thrown him, I think it was a, maybe something away, change away, and then he came back with a slider away. So is he looking out over? Well, then you go to his first at-bat and everything was away. So if you're going to stay away, 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 away your first at-bat and you got him to fly out to left field, then he comes up in his second at-bat and he started, I want to say, change up away maybe, and you get a, a swing. Well, he, clearly he's diving out there. So, yes, it was a well-located pitch if you see where it was located, but how did you get there? I think you did. You got there against a left-handed hitter that is just diving right out over and feeling pretty good about where you're going to go. So there's a lot of play there. I think um, sequencing is one thing. Not pitching to Mateo is another thing. And you just you get Gunnar Henderson, and he's going to do damage. He is just red hot right now, and that cutter wasn't a great pitch either. But even the way he hit it, he's, he's locked in. That was a pretty good swing path from a, a young hitter that's really, really hot. Really hot, like unspeakably hot. Best hitter in baseball <laughs> since the calendar swung to June and the reigning American League um, player of the week. You, you mentioned, you know, as a, as a catcher, a lot of your focus is on sequencing. I'm curious, this is absolutely not a, a case where the umpire strike zone was uh, a part of the outcome of the game or anything. But I am curious because I do have you on when you see when you're a catcher and the strike zone is as we'll call it variable, as flexible as it was yesterday. How does that change your approach back there in terms of where you're calling pitches or, or where you're setting up when, you know, the strike zone does look a little wide, but but it's not particularly consistent? Yeah, you, you have to definitely play with the umpire, and that's part, part of your job back there. I know a lot of people that want robo-umpires don't want to hear this stuff, but until that happens, you have to do that. That's, a, that's what good catchers do that really have a good feel and a good idea behind the plate. You schmooze them a little bit. Hey, Bill, how are we doing today? Good. You guys go out for dinner last night? Yeah, you've got to make sure that you're developing that catcher-umpire relationship. And then you don't know until the game starts, but if you're a couple of innings in and he's really giving you that, so let's say it's Bassett's breaking ball off the outside, corner to right as well and you sneak out there maybe a couple extra inches with your setup and and you talk between innings hey we're getting that ball just off the outside let's stay there or if it's the lefties maybe it's the cutter that you're backdooring and you can backdoor it even further started in that right-handers batter's box a little further against these left-handed hitters because he's given it to us whatever the case may be but I think when it's inconsistent, it's kind of hard to do too much because then you might get off the plate a little bit too much and then you're not getting the call. But it's certainly a factor and it's certainly a something that a catcher has to be very aware of. So the Jays get down in this one 8-1. to one. They get down 11-2. to two. You get into kind of the later innings. Obviously, no one, there's no scenario other than this unlikely comeback where anyone's leaving the ballpark happy with how things went. But at an individual level, are guys able to turn the page and focus on, hey, let, let's find something for me to build on in this bad game? I think of a three-hit game for Varsho, a three-hit game for Kirk, um, two hits for, for Biggio coming in off the bench. Are guys able to do that mentally, like flip the switch to, okay, this one's 
gone, but let me build on something for, for myself that can maybe carry over into the next day? Yeah, and it's, it is mental, like you just said. It's got to be in your own head because it's pretty hard to come into a clubhouse after that loss last night, and I bet that room was pretty quiet because these guys know how important these games are, and we, we talked about it on the broadcast last night in our Open because it is. They're not playing a whole lot of AL East right now for a couple months. So when you do and when you're in here in Baltimore, I think these games are amplified a little bit, and it did not go well. And if you start thinking in your head, are we, is this our measuring stick against the Orioles, then you're kind of saying, uh-oh. But, yes, there are some individual performances, and I think especially if you're a Varsho or Alejandro looked good again, so he's lining balls all over the field. Those, those are good things. You, you have to kind of keep those internal. And, uh, you know, at the same time, you remember other guys didn't have such good days. But, yes, you you, you got to wash it. And I think that's one thing this team is – is good at and good teams have to be you're going to play a lot of games and you're going to have stinkers it's just this one didn't just come at a bad time but it came against a team that they know they have to be (laughs) competing with so these next two days especially after getting swept at home so you start you know that little doubt guy on your shoulder starts creeping peeking and whispering into your ear and you start doubting yourselves but hopefully those guys because we know you know, that was an outlier, of course, for Bassett. He's had a few of them, but overall he's been pretty darn good. And to me, the biggest thing, Blake, and I'm sure you'd agree, is this lineup has to get going. You have to score. And I know they scored six last night, but this lineup has to be more consistent and take some of that pressure off the pitching staff. Absolutely. And it's one thing, you know, you get down 8-1, that, that's a tough hole no matter what. But when things are going the way it's going right now, it feels like 8-1 is, is insurmountable, even when you have 18 uh, outs left at that point. And you mentioned kind of the, the confidence this Orioles team is playing with. I think back to when they were here uh, mid-late May, and I think it was Ryan O'Hearn had the quote. He got asked about if, you know, winning the series was a statement game. And he said, no, sweeping the series is a statement game. They were already looking ahead to the Sunday. That That's the kind of confidence that that team has right now. When you look at this Blue Jays lineup, obviously they have to get going. Um, what do you think is at at the root of this team's inability to hit for power right now because they did have 15 hits yesterday that's twice now they've seen Dean Kramer and scattered a whole bunch of hits and walks and it hasn't led to uh, a big number on the board home runs aren't everything you don't want to build your whole offense around selling out for the long ball but this is a team that's 12th in home runs and 18th in home run per fly ball rate on paper it feels like they should be better than that what do you think is biting them there when it comes to the home run ball well, I think you the number one name to me is Vladdy. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, we're just not seeing it, right? Like he, we, we need to see more from him, and we've been, you know, John Schneider's talking about it. I think everybody's talking about it, and I'm sure he's doing things to try to fix it. But even last night, so you, George leads off with a double, and Vladdy hits an RBI single, and that's great. But, I mean, really kind of came around and beat a ground ball into the ground and found a hole up the middle. That's not what you want from Vladdy. And it's an RBI single. That's wonderful. The numbers are going to look pretty good because Vladdy is – his ceiling is – it seems like it's through the roof because we've seen those flashes and we're starting now to call them flashes as opposed to who Vladdy is because now we're all doubting it, right? But if he can get back to where he's, I just think his swing's a mess right now. He's rushing. He's not getting his hands in the right position. And when you rush, you're late and you flick balls and that's where he's pounding them in the ground. There, there are a lot of mechanical things I think going wrong there. I disagree with some people I've heard. It's, oh, it's just about getting a good pitch to hit. And I disagree because I think he's gotten good pitches to hit and mechanically he's just not right. So that for me is one right there. I mean, there's a lot of production there. He's not a singles hitter, right? I think we can agree on that. And that's a big hole. Chapman's another one where even though he's not going well, 
he's a type of hitter that should still be running in one every once in a while, right? So that that's an issue, and I think teams are starting to pound him more and more up in the zone, and he was handling it better earlier in the year, but maybe not as much now. And we've seen uh, we've seen some of those. You know, Farshall will run into one once in a while, and he's been much improved, and we saw some good things last night. He did handle a pitch up in the zone, but at the same time, there are plenty of times where we're going to see teams continue to go up there. But, again, he's a guy that we know when he came here, He's not a guy that's going to hit 320, right? He's going to run into hopefully 25 to 30, and he probably will. But you can still see we, you need that power. You need Chapman to be running into something. You need Vladdy to be Vladdy. So there's a lot of power that's being sapped out right there. And unfortunately, Danny didn't look very good at all in his first game back. We'll give that a little time. But there's another guy that can run into some power-wise because that's what they're missing. Now, running into scoring position has been horrible. We know that. But one way to correct that is to, to leave the yard a little bit more, and I think that's what this team is missing right now. Well, maybe the solution is a little bit more Kevin Biggio uh, because he's doing it every time he pinch hits, every time he enters the game. Um, I, I guess quickly before we let you go here, Joe, the, the Brandon Belt injury fallout, obviously we're going to see a little bit more of Alejandro Kirk or Danny Jansen at DH. I, I think you know you might work the extra Springer day in there. Um, but are you interested in, in seeing if Kevin Biggio can keep up this kind of mini small sample hot streak with a bit more playing time while Belt? down well he certainly earned the opportunity am i interested in seeing it sure i think we all are and great for Kevin for for earning this opportunity because you know brandon belt goes on the il if the last few weeks had been different for Kevin, if they'd been like the start of the season you're talking about a possible roster move and somebody coming up from triple a right so that he's earned this and they got another opportunity last night and sure it happens late in the ball game but you just try to take advantage every time you can and i think he seems to feel better with what he's doing at the plate and we'll see if he can consistently do it because you know kevin's i think kevin's got some again some flaws in that swing but he's been working hard i had a long conversation with him in spring training one day and he talked all about it looked good it looked like he was coming on to something and then the start of the season just wasn't good and he was kind of going back to his old ways so maybe he's found something and that you know you can get these little triggers but the biggest thing is going to be to see if he can maintain this and especially if it means maintaining it in in somewhat of an everyday role or a bigger role Jays could use it right now. They'll need some offense tonight. Uh, Jose Barrios against Kyle Bradish. You'll be on the call. Joe Siddle, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning. All right, Blake. Have a great day. Joe Siddle of SportsCenter. You can catch him out on the Blue Jays broadcast uh, on the television side. Elsewhere around the city of Toronto, it's uh, it's Massey Hall Day. If, if you are a concert goer and you've enjoyed the musical history of this city, Massey Hall, which is, is redone now, um, it's been named the it's Massey Hall Day. It's the anniversary of its opening way back in 1894. Uh, someone who's played there, someone who sat down with Ryan O'Reilly there uh, for a Sportsnet video package ahead of the Leafs playoff run, uh, and someone who probably going to find themselves on that uh, Polaris list uh, later this year, where the and they'll hold the gala at Massey Hall this year is Dallas Green of City and Color of Alexis on Fire. We're going to take a break. He joins us next to talk about his Jays fandom, uh, of course, his, his Raptors uh, and Leafs fandom as well. And hey, Alexis on Fire playing Bud Stage this Friday. We'll talk to Dallas Green next on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan and Sports at 360. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Merrick Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. This Friday at Budweiser Stage. 
Mets, pop the band, Alexis on fire. It's going to be tremendous. It's going to be something like 16,000 people. Uh, three of your favorite bands that have come up around here. Be the unofficial kickoff of summer. I know the Blue Jays did that May 24th weekend or, or whatever, and they called it the unofficial start of summer. I am declaring Friday, uh, and I hope the weather cooperates. I'm declaring Friday the unofficial start of summer. Alexis on Fire pup. Matt's joining us now from Alexis on Fire, from City on Color, City in Color. It's Dallas Green. Dallas, how are you, man? Good, buddy. How are you doing? I am pretty well. I've uh, been a bit since, since we chatted off of text. Um, I know that you are a baseball fan, but we got to do a little bit of Raptors stuff because I know you were, you had built a relationship with former Raptors head coach, Nick nurse. Uh, I know that you have been very curious about what this off season is going to look like for this team. Uh, how are you feeling about your Raptors right now? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, weirdly, I literally was just texting with Nick uh, two seconds ago. Uh, we were not talking about the Raptors, but um, uh, I, you know, I think we, you and I had both talked about this a couple of times, but I was a little bit sort of just like confused of what they were doing. And I think hiring this new coach seems to signal that the sort of rebuild is what we're going to probably look towards. And I think I'm okay with that. I just sort of wish they had have like started it last season because it makes me even more confused about what they were doing last year. You know? Yeah. But, I, do, uh, I do know. Sorry. Yeah. We'll see Blake. You know, I don't know. It's like, it's fine. I think it's, it's sure. It's time to, to kind of like um, switch gears. The, the team obviously was not the team to get, get it done. And we all saw that as fans. Um, so we'll see, we'll see where this goes. You know, we'll see what kind of what, well, I guess we'll see what our team looks like in the next couple of months. But, um, I read up a little bit about the new coach. I listened to a couple of people talk about him. He seems like, uh, you know, a pretty good developmental guy. And so we'll kind of see where we end up. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I don't know that he'll be, uh, you know, as involved in the local music scene as Nick Nurse was. Um, one of, you know, I, I know that in terms of this Raptors direction and something, again, you you and I have talked about, um, and if they do go that, hey, we're going to rebuild a little bit, we're going to look a little toward the future direction, um, even if you can get there logically, and even if, like you said, you, you wish they had started it a little earlier, maybe at last year's trade deadline instead, uh, I know that, Fred Van Vliet is someone that you've really enjoyed watching and, and getting to know as a fan. And, you know, you see some, we talked, there, there's some like kinship there with Fred Van Vliet's story and things like that. Would that be the hardest part for you? If the Raptors do turn, turn to a rebuild is the, the Fred Van Vliet component of it, him potentially playing somewhere else. You know, I don't think so. I think maybe like a couple of years ago, if he had of like, if we had to just sort of cast them aside after they won and, and, um, you know, kept trying to like sort of get rid of the core to always upgrade to see if they could keep winning. I would have been disappointed, but I think for what Freddie, the story of Freddie is so brilliant. And then for what he has given the organization, um, I, I want him to go and get paid. And if we're the team to not pay him, then that's okay. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. The years, the years we got to watch him, um, and you knew he was giving everything he could on the court and, you know, he's a great dude in the community. And, um, yeah, I've, I joke with you about, like, I bet on myself as well. So I, I really feel that kinship with him uh, as an independent artist, you know. Um, but, no, you know, I think he, he also kind of, like, he's older. He's put in the work. And if we're going to actually kind of retool and rebuild a little bit, 
I think all those guys deserve to go play on teams that, that are kind of like a little further ahead than we are. It's also, it's really fun to, to picture what that could look like, right? I think of Pascal uh, on a couple different teams that, that he'd be a great fit. And then Fred, actually, the, the fit that I think is the coolest, and I don't really know the mechanics of how it would work, but him joining Nick and Joel Embiid in Philly to me is, uh, oh. is, uh, is a nice fit. Um, in, in terms of your, your friendship with Nick Nurse, obviously he, he's Philly-bound. Have you put him in contact yet? Like, like who is the Philly version of Dallas Green that he's got to sit down with? Is it, is it Dan Campbell of Wonder Years? Like, who is he going to be chopping it up with and... Uh, you know, rehearsing with and things like that in Philly. Well, I, I actually just reminded him that because um, he's a he's a big fan of uh, he's a big fan of Pink, right? Mm. And so I just reminded him that um, Alicia is from Philly, so he's now coaching he's coaching Alicia's team. He went from coaching my team to her team. So uh, not that you know she's busy playing stadiums in Europe. So <laughs> I don't know if she's gonna I don't know if she's gonna be around for a, a, a jam at the house anytime soon. But but um. Yeah, that's the, I mean, that's the most prominent person I know from, from Philadelphia. So that's a pretty big one. And you said stadiums, uh, you know, my, I, I was talking to my mom the other day. She's excited to go when, uh, when pink's here in July. So that's a lot of fun. Um, four years ago, you guys played bud stage, a pair of shows, and it was kind of like, uh, it, it folded into the Raptors celebration, right? Like you had the Raptor mascot on stage. You're now doing this Friday. You'll play with, with Papa and Matt's at bud stage. Does the, does it ever wear off like just how cool it is that you guys have come up in the Toronto scene and you can pack a place like bud stage with regularity and get to play this kind of start of summer homecoming show? Uh, no, it doesn't wear off. You know, like this is a venue that obviously even just growing up in St. Catharines, which felt, you know, Toronto felt like it felt like New York city to, to people from, from, um, from all around. Right. Especially in the, in the, in the no internet age where it, everything felt so much farther away. Uh, I used to, you know, I grew up going to shows there when I was younger with my, with my friends or my older friends, we would drive up. And so to, to sort of be regularly playing there now is um, it's like, there's like a, a sort of simultaneous experience where I'm proud of myself and I expect to be, be able to do it. But every time I walk out on a, on a summer night on that stage, cause I, I think I've played, between the both of us, the city and color Alexis, I've, I must have played the bus stage like 10 or 12 times now. Um, and it's still remarkable, you know, and I think this lineup is probably the coolest lineup we've ever had just because of the, the sort of just the trip, the triple threat of underground um, bands that kind of like kind of made good. Do you know what I mean? With us yeah. and pop and Mets and like, I've known Chris Lorak, the bass player of, of, of Mets since, since I was like 18 years old. You know what I mean? So to be, to be able to play, play with them who we're huge fans of, and obviously you know how we feel about Pop. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, I think it's just a really good win for the punks. Basically, <laughs> I I agree, and I, I'm super looking forward to it. Uh, Friday will be a blast. So um, the Jays aren't at home this week, so so we can't tie in. You know, you throwing out the first pitch or anything like that. Uh, but you are a pretty big baseball fan, and that goes back for anyone who doesn't know. That goes back to when your parent you, you're kind of like this baby without a name until your dad settles on, on Dallas Green. Can you tell us a little bit about that story and your connection to baseball and hey to Philadelphia through that well, as well? Hey, that yeah, that's the, that's the other thing that me and Nick have been talking about. I was like, you know, so I, I'm fine that you, you chose the, the Sixers cause I'm, you know, I'm tied to them forever being named after a sport, Philadelphia sports legend. Yeah. My, my father bet money on the Phillies to win the world series in 1980. And, uh, 
I can't remember the exact date they won. It's like a, it's like two weeks into October, I think they actually won it. And my mom wanted to name me Graham Todd. Uh, that's a hyphen in there, by the way, Graham Todd. And my father did not want to name me Graham Todd. And they kind of argued for a while and waited. And then the Phillies ended up winning the World Series. And Dallas Green was coaching the team. <laughs> so that was that was it. My name was Dallas from then on. And I tell that story every time I play on stage in Philadelphia. And it, you know, it, uh, I think, endears me a little bit more to the crowd, which is nice because then I usually ultimately talk shit about the, oh, I just swore, sorry, <laughs> about their, uh, about their sports teams. So, yeah, it wasn't that long ago uh, during the, the Raptors 76ers playoff series, you guys played history here in Toronto. And I believe there was another swear word being chanted al- alongside the name of Joel Embiid uh, during yeah. that show. <laughs> so it's nice that you can, uh, you can butter them up afterward as well. So, I mean, you, you are a big baseball fan. I know that it's a little tougher to, to keep up with day to day when, when you're on the road, when you're, you know, playing to 80,000 people at download fest in the UK and things like that. Um, but from, you know, from afar, what, what is your feeling of this year's team? Where's your excitement level uh, with this group? Well, I think like everybody, I was pretty excited in the first bit of the season. <laughs> um, now I'm just a little bit more worried because there's, seem to be falling back into that beautiful Toronto Blue Jays trend of not being able to beat anyone in their division, which, um, you know, last night case in point, but I know there's been some injuries and some drama and all of that stuff. And obviously like, you know, the uh, kind of the, the Alec Manoa debacle is disappointing and, but it's the middle of the season and uh, you know, I'm hoping to, I'm hoping that they can kind of like get right and, and make a little run near the end, you know, uh, I did get to go to one game earlier this season, which was nice. It was nice to see the the sort of all of the, um, I brought my nephews to, to an afternoon, like a matinee and to see all the new kind of, um, I think they did a great job in the stadium too, you know? So hopefully they can uh, parlay that into a, a playoff, some playoff games as well. And, and we'll see, I don't know. I don't know how active. Um, yeah. Like you said, I, I, I was on tour for the last like sort of months and it's hard to kind of, watch Jay's games when you're on stage in the middle of them in the States and they're definitely not on television. Um, but, uh, yeah, I haven't really heard much about like if they're going to, if they're thinking to be active at the trade deadline or whatever, but, um, I did just read about a prospect named Chad Dallas, which I think is a good omen for us. No. Yeah, and he's uh he's an interesting prospect. You know, he's he's maybe a, a little bit away from the majors still, but you know, he's about to turn 23, so so still a, a little bit away and he's in double A right now, but he's been kind of one of the fastest risers in the system on, on the pitching side. So yeah, we we got to uh we got to get him up here. We we certainly got to make sure you're at his major league debut uh and we can build that connection out. I, I know I remember in 2015, I can't remember if it was 2015 or 2016, but, but you know, that Jays run, you, you were around a bunch and you really got into that. When you look back on your Jays fandom, is there like a year or a team that stands out and it can be one of the bad years. Cause it almost always is when I ask this question to people, like what in your memory is like, Oh, that was, that was my Jays team. That was the Jays team that I lived and died with or, or associated with when I look back on my fandom, whether it's, you know, I, I think we're, we're close to the same age. So it might be like that black Jersey, era with the the toothpaste jay um what team like that kind of stands out to you from from this jay's history well for 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 sure the the 15 team because i me and my my like we were touring a lot in that time but me and my guys on the road like a couple of us were just so 
so connected to them. And, and we actually ended up, I was at the bat flip game, nice. you know, which, which is just one of the greatest sport, like being at that game and at the, the Kawhi shot against the Sixers game. Like those are two of the, those are the, like in the, in my sort of 24 years of watching the sport, like the sports teams in the city in, intently, uh, those two games being being there were, you know, the greatest sports moments for me. I mean, obviously the refs winning was good, but I was I was in a basement in Los Angeles <laughs> watching on TV, about to go on stage. Um, so that 15 team was just there was just something about it, and I, and I know that's like the easy answer, but I think from like the years before that when they were really bad, like I loved the Johnny McDonald era. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. I I went to a game the day after John McDonald got traded, and I and I went to the the, the store and got a Johnny Mac Jays jersey made the day after he, he was traded as uh, as an homage to him. Um, you know, so it's stuff like that, right? But it's hard to not say that 15 team because other than the other than watching them win, you know, when I was a kid, which I sort of like, I remember, but I was, you know, I don't know, you know, I was a young kid and thought, oh, this is what sports is like. They win, hmm. you know, but um, spoiled. I mean, watching the. Yeah, just watching that 15 team like really come together and and almost do something. I mean that that was just it was crazy, you know. Yeah, it was a it was a ton of fun, and it would be it would be nice to rekindle that. Um, let let's can let's do the full roundup of sports, and I know you know hockey maybe isn't quite the same level as basketball for you, but we crowned an NHL Stanley Cup champion last night, and one of the key pieces for the Vegas Golden Knights, Keegan Colasar, has an Alexis on Fire tattoo, has a City in Color tattoo. Um, how cool is that for you? To, like, obviously, I, I know at this point you've run into athletes who are fans of your music and stuff like that, but on that stage, and you can see the tattoos peeking out of it out of his t-shirt um is that that kind of thing still pretty cool for you yeah absolutely man i think i mean it's like you know you're anytime somebody says they're stoked on what you're doing it's it's special right like it's what you wanted it's what i wanted when i was younger i wanted to move people and connect with people with the tunes i was writing so but then to see um to see people that are like excelling and giving everything they have uh in their own craft um, also kind of be stoked and, and be outwardly supportive of us, you know, like that, that clip that was going around of Keegan talking about how survivor's guilt, um, from the new Alexis record is his pump up song before the, for the games is, is rad. And, and he, um, he, him and our manager, Joel are kind of close. Like I haven't actually got to meet the kid yet, but, um, he was always sending Joel videos and, and clips of how they were like listening to the new city and color record in the locker room. We're listening to Alexis and, so that's just kind of cool to kind of be like, you know, not a part of it, but just sort of like be a little bit one of the ingredients. And um, I watched, I, I was thankful enough to be home. So I watched the game last night and I watched Keegan carry the cup and I just thought it's, it's, it's rad. And I think we're going to be in, in Winnipeg uh, with event sevenfold in July. And I think he's hopefully be home. So we'll, uh, maybe he'll plan his cup day for that show and we'll just do a celebration of, of, uh, of the whole thing. There you go. I'm trying to get him on the show tomorrow, like, like, uh, or Friday. Let's, let's talk it up. Let's get into the Alexis on fire phantom. Let, let's get you out to that concert. I'll, I'll you know, I'll bug pup for a plus one and, and we'll bring Keegan out. Um, but yeah, yeah man, the, for the, sure. the Manitoba one uh, would be a lot of fun uh, as well. Dallas, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. I know, I know you got a busy summer ahead, uh, city and color with it, with a bunch of festival dates, including blues fest and uh, a date at Budweiser stage later in the summer. Alexis on fire, of course, all over the place. So I uh, really appreciate you taking the time out and looking forward to seeing you guys on Friday. 
Okay, man. Talk to you soon. Dallas Green of City and Color, of Alexis on Fire. He is a Juno winner. And, of course, Alexis on Fire, Friday at Bud Stage with Pup and Mets. You can go to Ticketmaster.ca if you didn't win tickets with us and you are still looking for those. Uh, you can also check out uh, their albums, of course, uh, Otherness, the album from Alexis on Fire that came out last year, and then Dallas's side project, City and Color, uh, The Love Still Held Me Near, uh, terrific album, and it's, you know, we're, we kind of ran out of time with Dallas there, but hearing him talk about what went into the writing of that album and him reconnecting with the art and how much writing music uh, is a part of him and means so much to him. It's been really cool to to see and listen to those interviews and, um, you know, engage with that music as well. Very different tone than, than I'm getting ready for Friday with, with Alexis and Pup, um, but that should be a blast as well. Um, in the second half of this show, we're going to talk to Keegan Matheson of MLB.com, of BlueJays.com, about last night's game, about where the Blue Jays are at right now. And we... You know, we had a, an abbreviated Joe Siddle chat a little earlier, but, you know, Joe's point, it resonates that whatever's going on with the pitching, whatever's going on with the hitters in running with runners in scoring position, one of the best ways you can get yourself back in games, one of the best ways you can work around not having the best sequencing or, or batted ball luck or something like that is to uh, hit the long ball. And it's not to say sell out for it. It's not to say the Jays uh, need to go out and get some 50 home run masher although you're never going to argue with that really um, but this is a team that you know is is pretty pedestrian when it comes to hitting home runs and that puts a lot of pressure on your ability to not only stack up the hits they had 15 of them yesterday in addition to a couple walks um, but come through in those big moments maybe it wouldn't have mattered yesterday Chris Bassett having as rough a start as he did and the Jays giving up 11 runs but maybe it would have maybe if it's not 8-1 maybe if it's 8-4 8-5 or something like that uh, the bullpen usage is a little different Jays are a little closer and um, things kind of snowball from there and you'd have had the benefit of getting even further into the Orioles bullpen uh, Dean Kramer able to give them six in that one at least you force them to use four relievers over the final three innings we're going to take a break when we come back we'll talk to Keegan Matheson as Jay's Talk Plus continues on Sports at 590 The Fan and Sports at 360 Everything Raptors before and after the games The Raptor Show with Will Liu Subscribe and download the show on Apple Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Welcome back to Jay's Stock Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Nice little chat with Dallas Green there. Again, it's Massey Hall Day, uh, which is cool. Polaris 2023 uh, will be there. This uh, Massey Hall opened uh, this day in 1894. That's how old that venue is. And I mentioned it just coming off of Dallas because Dallas, we didn't get to talk to him about it there. Uh, we kind of ran out of time, but he did do a sit down with Ryan O'Reilly of the Toronto Maple Leafs at Massey Hall, which I thought was just the coolest venue to do a, a sit down one-on-one. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned some basketball news a little earlier in that Rico Hines has left the Raptors coaching staff to join Nick Nurse in Philadelphia. One other just tiny bit of basketball news. Uh, congratulations and a shout out to my friend uh, Katie Heindel, whose Raptors work and basketball feelings work you have surely uh, consumed over the last couple of years. It's indispensable if you are a basketball fan and if you, especially if you are a basketball empath, um, she just announced today that she's got a book on the way, uh, basketball feeling. So congrats to Katie, uh, who's probably not listening to Jay's Talk Plus, but nonetheless, um, who is listening to Jay's Talk Plus is Keegan Matheson of MLB.com, of BlueJays.com. He joins us now fresh from a quick trip out to the ocean to reset yourself. How was uh, how was Scotia, man? 
Beautiful. I feel like I'm a, a better person to be around for the next couple of months. You know, it's like a, a video game. I go out east and it refills all the hearts for a little while. I, uh, I think I'm back, at least for now. I'll find something cranky uh, later on. Later on. And, and hey, if you needed something to be cranky about, well, the Toronto Blue Jays did their did their part last night. Um, so Good. that's uh, that game didn't go particularly well. They lose 11 to six. Um, it's not it wasn't really as close as 11 to six. They were down big and they were down early. Tough to come back from uh, the thing that you wrote about for BlueJays.com. It's one interesting part of that game and something we really haven't seen much this year. The Jays actually emptied the bench. They did the basketball thing. Hey, the third stringers, everyone goes out there and plays out the last couple minutes, the last couple innings in this case. We saw Nathan Lucas. We saw Kevin Biggio. We saw Ernie Clement. uh, We saw Santiago Espinal all come in off the bench. What did you make of, of... you know, not not how those guys were used because I mean, at that point in the game, it's so lever- low leverage. But just when when you see the bench used on mass, it kind of does give you a, a more crystallized perception of what the bench is. What did you make for, from that game and what the bench looks like right now? Yeah, it's interesting to see the bench uh, being used. Frankly, the Blue mm-hmm. Jays have been pretty unique in, in terms of how they've used the bench and. Up until this point, I haven't believed that it's a good or a bad thing. I think the Blue Jays would love it if they were allowed to carry nine or ten relievers instead of having a fourth guy on the bench based on their usage. But you're starting to see the need to use all of these guys. The Blue Jays were, if not baseball's healthiest team, in the three healthiest for the first six or eight weeks of the season. And that's never going to last. You're starting to see injuries come slowly, nothing catastrophic. Nothing big, knock on wood, so far for the Blue Jays, but you always see these things happen eventually. So their depth is going to be something they have to start using intentionally instead of just, hey, let's let this guy play. He hasn't played in seven days. Let's remind him how baseball works. So you'll see a bit more of that, but interesting to see all of them in one place. And at least a little bit of good news with Kevin Biggio coming up uh, again with a home run, that's a guy that needs some momentum, but his bench as a whole is going to be relied on a bit more. And they're going to have to. And, you know, like you, like you just laid out there, the the reasons for it, it's also a, a pretty long season. And as the schedule sometimes dictates, you go long stretches without off days and you need to get guys days off their feet. Um, one thing we're going to see with Brandon Belt now on the IL, it sounds like everyone's hoping it's the minimum stay, but that still leaves us with another six or seven games here of, of um, you know, no Brandon Belt in there. The DH spot presumably open. Alejandro Kirk played there last night. I'm sure we'll see a George Springer day there. Maybe another Vlad day there with Biggio at first base. Is Biggio the guy you would expect to be the largest beneficiary from a playing time perspective with Belt on the aisle? I think so for Biggio. Now, it's, it's at the point in baseball now where it's, it's a lot like positionless basketball. It's it's no longer first baseman out, first baseman in. It's it's you know I'm a little strange in that sense. That's why you see an Ernie Clement coming up for a Brandon Belt. The Blue Jays have ten guys who can play second base right now. Do they need ten? Uh, I don't know, but they they have ten. So I think Biggio will get some more at bats in there. Alejandro Kirk is tempting to have a DH, but the entire point of Brandon Belt was to limit Alejandro Kirk needing to DH so often because last year when Kirk faded down the stretch, 
he lost a lot of his power as he fatigued. And this year, he already doesn't have much of that power. So I think managing Kirk and keeping him fresh still has to be a priority, even without Brandon Belt in that lineup every day. So a little bit of Kevin Biggio, it's time. You know, it has long been time for Kevin Biggio to step up and really step into some bigger at-bats. But this is it. You need to do it right now, and credit to him these last couple of games, a couple of home runs, he has done that. But it's uh, certainly a big moment for him, whether this is the next six or seven games or a bit longer. Never know the soft tissue injuries. So definitely Biggio. I think you'll see some more ABs there. Yeah, so, I mean, Biggio's a guy that in, like you said, in a small sample here the last couple of weeks has started to uh, turn it around a little bit, and you can't really take much from it, but you can take more than you would take from it with zero uh, performance over the last little bit. So if you look at the last three weeks, he's gotten into 15 games. He's only started nine of those, um, but an OPS up around 1.1. As Chris Black pointed out, tops on the team in that that stretch in batting average, OBP and slugging, uh, the internal advanced stats, triple crown or rate stats, triple crown. Um, Obviously he's not going to hit like that forever, but this is an organization that has remained pretty high on Kevin Biggio through some of his struggles. Where is your confidence level that Kevin Biggio, you know, given a little bit of sample here could get back to a reasonably effective version of Kevin Biggio versus this kind of, Hey, cold for a month, hot for a week version. We've seen really the last two years. Yeah, there's still something there, uh, I think, with Biggio. And granted, the numbers this year are not good. And you have seen him exposed in certain situations, whether that be high fastballs, high velocity. These are things we've been over with Biggio that can expose some weaknesses in his game. Every player has them, and those happen to be Biggio's at some point. There is also a reason that he's stuck on this roster. The Blue Jays love this guy. Uh, Internally, it's hard to overstate you know, how many supporters Biggio has in this organization. And I've said in the past that if the Blue Jays could take Biggio's brain and his instincts and put it in every single player, they'd love to. You know, you haven't seen it as much this year. There have been, even on the basis where he's great, a couple of times where he hasn't looked the best. But I think a lot of this has to do with confidence for Biggio as well. When you are hitting 150 for a lot of the year, And when you are a weak link in a lineup that has a lot of stars, that's going to get to you. That's natural. That's human nature. So I think this is a big opportunity for Kevin at this point. And he does not need to light the world on fire. He does not need to be Barry Bond. That's fine. If he can hit a little over 200 with that 350-ish on base percentage, which is supposed to be one of his greatest skills, that plate approach, and then a little bit of power. The power is so important for Kevin. I remember back in spring training talking to him and him saying that he needs that power. And it's kind of refreshing to hear that. You hear a lot of guys say, oh, I'll get to the power. I just want to swing at the right pitches or whatever the, the boring answer of the day is these days. It changes once a month. But Kevin says, no, I need to hit for power. I need to have those 15 or 20 home runs so pitchers know that there's some danger there. It's so important for him. And the good start, a good start these last few days just need to see a lot more. So that's an interesting lesson for Kevin Biggio to be learning and navigating here, uh, of course, because yes, you can have the great approach. You can walk a ton, but eventually if you're not doing damage, pitchers will not pitch around you in a way that allows you to take all those walks. It'll be a lot of O2 counts while you're sitting there with the bat on your shoulders, trying to work a long one. Someone who I think 
at the higher levels of the minors and if he makes the majors is going to deal with something similar is a guy you wrote about in that piece last night you mentioned earlier hey we're past the point of first baseman's on the IL so you call up a first baseman if the Blue Jays were to have done that though it would have been Spencer Horwitz who is you know 25 years old he's been in the system a little bit now this is his second go round at AAA and he's putting up solid numbers he's hitting 301 he's got a 421 OBP walk rate sky high almost as high as his strikeout rate when you look at Andy's on the 40 man, by the way, when you look at the Jays decision to not give Spencer Horwitz uh, a, an opportunity here with belt on the IL, and of course there's the flexibility component, but how much of that do you think comes down to the fact that right now, even with that good approach, even with those good overall numbers, Spencer Horwitz isn't a guy who's been able to handle the, Hey, you got to hit for power. You got to be a threat to be able to carry this over the next level. Like what component of, of Spencer Horwitz kind of, hitting the the ceiling here developmentally comes down to that ability to find some power. Yeah, it's it's a big part of it. And I, I, I feel like there's a deleted scene in Moneyball where Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill are talking about Spencer Horwitz and his <laughs> name is up on the board. He, he's such a unique player. And as a first baseman this year, has just two home runs. That's not what you think about at first base. But his average and his walks and his on base are so attractive. So for Horwitz coming in to this next stage, this final stage of his development, is he going to be able to hit 320 with a 420 on base percentage in the big leagues? If so, okay, we can overlook the lack of power. But not a lot of guys do that in the big leagues. That, that's a real jump, I think, here. So you need to see a bit more power from Spencer Horwitz. And it also is a matter of positional versatility. If you only play one position in Major League Baseball – man, you better be good at it. You'd better be Vladdy. You'd better be Mike Trout. You had better be one of the best in the league at your position. Everybody plays five positions now. So for Horwitz, he does play a little bit of the corner outfield, not at a level that I think the Blue Jays would want to put out there for 10 or 20 games in a row, but still such an interesting bat. And I think could almost complement a lineup in the same way Alejandro Kirk can. No, he's not going to go out there and slug 20 home runs, but if you have one out and a runner on third base in a tie game, that's a pretty attractive bat to have at the plate, one that can put a ball in play or at the very least work a good at-bat. You're talking about runners in scoring position needing some consistency. That's attractive. But again, there's one missing piece. It's the power with Spencer Horowitz, a bat that I really, really like. I think he's fascinating. But if you are not hitting for power as a first baseman and you're just a first baseman, who oh, you better do everything really, really well. Yeah. And the positional versatility is such a big part of it where, you know, you look around the league and it's like, oh, are there any first basemen that have a, a similar ish profile to this? And it's like, OK, maybe Joey Manessis with, with the Nationals and even he can play uh, a corner outfield in a pinch. And prior to this year, the answer would have been Luis Arise, but he's back at second base every day. Yeah. And, and even then you got to hit 382 if you're Luis Arise to uh, to get the headlines. Um, Keegan, just to kind of round out that piece that you wrote last night about some of the other options it could could have been or could be again uh, if the Jays face a, a corner infield 
injury later in the year. Um, Addison Barger moving up to Dunedin on his rehab on, on his way back. It's been a bit since he's been playing with regularity. But the other name you mentioned there, Davis Schneider, um, no relation to John Schneider, of course. He's a second baseman slash third baseman, a little undersized, kind of one of those guys not really ever on prospect list, but just has, has hit at each successive level. Is he a guy you're starting to hear about a little bit more as a, if not this year, you know, someone who's on the radar for the future in a way that maybe he wasn't a year or two ago? Yeah, Davis Schneider is a really fun, a really fascinating development story. Uh, I think a 28th rounder back Mm -hmm. in the day out of high school. And through the first three or four years, he was the guy that wasn't a priority. So if the Blue Jays had their number six or eight prospect on Davis Schneider's team, tough luck for him. He lost playing time. He earned his way into being a bit more of a priority And I think this year we have him on my pipeline list at number 28. And he was a guy that I I insisted, we need to have this guy ranked. He has earned it. He's not somebody who was a first rounder and has struggled and we're just kind of holding on to. Now, Schneider has 14 home runs this year. He is leading the Bisons by double the next guy. I think Ernie Clement's six home runs (laughs) is second place on the Bisons. He is a coach's favorite, uh, an organization favorite at each level he's been at. This is the type of guy that player development staff fall in love with, too, because he is overachieved at every level. The power is there, certainly. I had him described to me as kind of a a Dan Ugla body type of a shorter, stout, powerful hitter. But certainly someone who, you know, faces light up when I mention him to, to development staff. And the positional versatility with a little bit of second, third, some corner outfield will be important. Can he hang defensively? We'll see at the big league level. But what a story for him. He has earned every bit of this conversation, and that power is difficult to ignore. Will it fully translate? I don't know. We'll see eventually, but that's very intriguing, and the power is trending up for him. He is doing absolutely everything in his power, short of having a 40-man roster spot just now, to make the Blue Jays notice him. And as a 28th-round pick years back, that's just a, a great job by him and uh, by a lot of coaches along the way. Yeah, in the system since 2017, a, a really nice story there. And maybe it doesn't result in a 40-man spot this year, but uh, nice to have more guys like that uh, at a AAA level where there, there isn't really uh, a lot going on right now. And, and I guess, Keegan, to, to wrap up that conversation about this team's depth and the need to either find more productive depth or, or use their depth in more productive ways, um, we're a little early for trade season still. Uh, and obviously there are needs in the rotation and every team in baseball has needs in the bullpen as well. Um, but is that something you would expect this team to explore addressing it? And I don't, I don't want to be negative about, about Biggio or Espinal or, you know, Nathan Lucas or whatever, but we saw them in the mix for uh, guys like a Whit Merrifield last year. Seems like this team could use uh, another Whit Merrifield type, but maybe someone who, you know, is a, is a power threat in, in those small windows of playing time. Yeah, I think that would make a lot of sense uh, when the time comes. Now, maybe somebody gets completely hot. Maybe an Addison Barger bursts into this and changes everyone's mind. But in baseball, you have to be pessimistic. It's it's why I'm a natural fit. You need to wonder what's going to go wrong. So I think for the Blue Jays, finding that complementary piece. And and lineup-wise, you're not really trying to replace a starter at this point. You're waiting for starters to kind of come around. So it's a bit of a luxury where you're just looking for that something else, that complementary piece. Now, whether that be a Merrifield type who hits a lot and runs, or are you trying to find that lefty masher off the bench, somebody who can come in 
as a platoon guy into these versatile spots. We know the Blue Jays have a million of. And just boost this lineup a little bit because I think some power right now is very important. You know, Scheider said it last night that when you're kind of battling, you need some of these two and three run shots. They were out hit 17 to 15, but out homered four to one. That's always going to decide a game. So you need to find some power somewhere. And if Vladdy and others are not going to wake up and provide that, you've got to go out and get it. You certainly do. In terms of Vladdy, you know, it's been, it's been a stretch here, man, where, where there hasn't been a lot of power. I believe he did. Uh, he has one home run over the last month plus off a non-position player. Um, what is the the kind of the chatter around the team in terms of what's not working for Vlad? Because we've heard, you know, kind of rolling explanations or changing explanations of, you know, the approach is good and he's just using all fields or maybe he's expanding a little bit. You know, we had Joe Siddle on a, a little earlier in this broadcast and he's seeing some mechanical things uh, that are maybe awry with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. What is the sense around the team in terms of why that hasn't happened for him and his proximity to getting back there? The frustration is that it's, he looks close. And when you look close and it's not happening, that can be a little hard on the head. Now, when we saw that RBI single he had yesterday to to lead off the game, open the scoring, I thought that was a great sign because before Vladdy becomes that world beater again, he needs some of those more boring looking at bats where he's just sending a single back up the middle. That's what made him so, so good in the minor leagues was that between all of the power, He could have those at-bats where he kind of just did whatever he wanted. Okay, we need a single here, no problem. You haven't seen that as much lately. And the exit velocity is there. The launch angle is there. So many of these metrics are there. But the tough thing about baseball is that they only count the things that actually happen in real life. You know, we can turn it into a math project as much as we want with Laddie, but it's not happening yet. And that's confusing. It's frustrating at this point. And the further we get away from that 2021 season, it's fair, I believe, to continue asking, you know, is this closer to the reality or is that? And ever since 2021, we've seen more of this low 800 OPS type hitter who looks so close to being so much better. And we know the talent is in there. You don't do 2021 by accident. But when is it going to show up consistently? The lack of power has been, I think, it's turning into the most surprising story of the season with Vladdy, with his home run total and Schneider, Ross Atkins, everybody says and believes, and I think they're right that it's just going to be the snap of a finger. One day he is going to start hitting home runs, but that day has got to come. It does. And you mentioned the, uh, the, the home run, power just how low it is so I get it there are people who will point to 2021 and he hits 48 home runs and there is an element of that that has to do with playing some games in Dunedin and Buffalo Um, even though you know things like WRC plus try to account for that we can try to capture those those park factors because a lot of guys hit well in those spots and then you look last year and 32 seems like a reasonable enough number hey maybe 2021 did have some outlier to it Um, you know maybe that that was what the high watermark is going to be but he's on pace right now to hit 21 home runs this year. That is like, that's not a bad season. That's not a a drop off from 2021. That's a fundamentally uh, different hitter at that point. And obviously he's still like the baseline's obviously very good here. You mentioned low eight hundreds as kind of the type of guy he is. I guess this is, I don't want to sound alarmist about this and it's more of an off season question, but it, it say this season continues the way it, it does. And Vlad, you know, 
picks it up a little bit, but ends somewhere in the mid twenties for home runs. How does that change how you think about this team? And because I think about it in contrast to this Baltimore Orioles team that is kind of ahead of schedule and, and, you know, standings and performance wise is where the Jays are supposed to be. They're supposed to be flipped. The Orioles are on the the climb up here and and the fun prospects are just reaching the majors. The Jays are supposed to be the team that that's a little more established. The the winning starting to come a little bit. Um, If there is an element of this where, Vlad is not a franchise altering superstar, but just a a very good player. How much does that change how you feel about where this team is going? And particularly in a a division where the Yankees and Red Sox are always going to be the Yankees and Red Sox financially, the Rays are the Rays with all their dork magic. And now the Orioles are graduating one of the best systems in baseball to the major leagues regularly. Like, like how, it's not all on Vlad, but it does feel like if his if we at some point accept a lower ceiling for him, it does change how we think about the American League East now and and moving forward the next couple of years. It's major. Everybody can hit twenty home runs. Everybody in Major League Baseball, unless you are a slap hitting glove first infielder, most of these guys can hit twenty home runs. So you need more from Vladdy, and it's obviously in there. But at this point for him. You need him to get back, again, not closer, like you said, to that 2021, but in that 35-ish, 35 to 40 a year, you're happy. And the story of Laddie, which he has earned, is that he is the franchise-altering generational talent. We have not seen that since 2021. And the value of that is that he can steal a few games. This isn't the NBA where one star can take over and really impact a game or a series. But along the way, over 162 of these things, Vladdy was able to steal two, three, four games just by those big power displays. When he's hitting home runs, the Blue Jays are going to win. That's not the most advanced thing in the world, but those home runs are so important. Compare 48 homers to even if he gets up to 28 this year. That's 20 games without a Vladdy home run. That's going to swing some wins and losses especially when you're getting late in the season into a postseason series, you need a star to take over and do big things. Vladdy hasn't been doing that lately. We know the talent is in there. We know the pedigree is in there. He was the number one prospect. He was the second in MVP voting for a reason. But in baseball, it is about sustaining these things. A lot of guys come up and have success, and then the league adjusts to them. Pitchers have adjusted to Vladdy. Because they have seen in the minor leagues and in 2021, a lot of pitchers got turned into viral Twitter clips by Vladdy. You don't want to be that. So if you are preparing for the Blue Jays, even still today, you are putting Vladdy at the very top of your list because you know he can make you look stupid if he is hot that day. (laughs) And he is getting pitched differently. He's getting handled differently. It's his turn to adjust back to that. And it's been his turn for a year and a half. Yeah, it's uh it's a tough go and, and you know, any star player is gonna deal with that a little bit. We're seeing Bobachette, you know, chase a little bit more right now as he goes through, you know, by his standards a, a cool stretch, which is still not all that uh all that terrible. And and then on the the Orioles side, you know, you're running into them and some of their guys as they're figuring it out. Gunnar Henderson unlocking how to be uh, a more aggressive version of himself and, and how to take Chris Bassett for uh, a ride and chase him in the third inning yesterday. Keegan, so Chris Bassett does get chased after three yesterday allows eight runs they have to turn to the bullpen to cover the remaining five they go to Bowden Francis they go to Mitch White they go to Thomas Hatch Um, in terms of how the rest of this week 
lays out. Does that change anything for you? It, it is technically early enough that, you know, the bullpen day on Saturday could still very much be a, as you laid it out. Bowden, Francis, Mitch White, Thomas Hatch, none of them threw too many pitches necessarily. Um, although you, you'd need to work uh, an extra arm or two in there, Trevor Richards, Tim Meza, et cetera. Um, the other component of it is though, you know, Bowden Francis maybe didn't look as good as he, as he did Saturday. Mitch White looked better than he did Saturday, but that's a, a low bar at this point. Did anything that happened yesterday shift at all? How you're, how you're planning out the, the bullpen and that bullpen day over these, these next three, four days, like mentally. For right now, no, but I think it put them on the edge of that being a little dangerous because if you go out there and get a full, complete start from Jose Barrios tonight, okay, you're saved. Everything can maybe go back to normal. You save at least two of these guys for that bullpen day, whether that come Friday or Saturday in Arlington against the Rangers. But if Barrios can only go four or five tonight, and that's usually what you get from Yusei Kikuchi as well, which is why I think the Blue Jays might be well-served to separate Kikuchi in that bullpen day, then you're getting back into all of this. Again, you're going to need some multi-inning arms. And this is really the trouble of not having a number six starter right there available for you. You're going to multi-inning arms. You're figuring it out on the fly. And you're making the decision of, should we wait and hold this guy for two days from now or use him now? This is a much simpler life, a hundred times simpler if the Blue Jays had a number six starter who was ready. But their starting depth is not good right now, whether that be due to injuries or performance. It's, it's been a bit of both. But the Blue Jays are in a tough spot where they need Berrios to go six or seven tonight. And they need at least a good five or six from Yusei Kikuchi. But even though he's been better, he doesn't work deep into games. It's put themselves in a bit more of a fragile position, I think, than they would have wanted. Uh, you expect a little more from Bassett, but he is certainly someone who's earned the right to have the odd bad day at this point. The last one I, I got to ask, when you hear John Schneider mention yesterday that he was FaceTiming with Alec Manoa and Hyunjin Ryu, uh, they're down in Dunedin. Manoa, the the update there was he did a five-up, 72-pitch uh, bullpen, including some of it at the pitching lab down in Dunedin. But just the idea of FaceTiming into Ryu and Manoa, those two reunited, was, was there a little bit of um, you know feeling like you, you were missing out there? <laughs> that I would love to be at that dinner. Yeah. You know, come on, what those guys would put down at a dinner, I think, would scare you. And, well, this is also the new slim version of Hunjin Ryu. This is the uh, the new and improved Hunjin Ryu. But I think it's good to have those two together again. Those two have been close. I think Ryu will be very good for Alec Manoa. But, yeah, the, the big guys are back together. I think only good can come from that. The timeline, who knows? But very good to have Ryu with Manoa there. Yeah, it's nice to have a, a friend around and those guys, you know, whether learning off of each other or just having that, you know, bit of levity as you go through a, a tough stretch is important. Keegan Matheson, uh, hope you enjoy Baltimore, man. As far as I understand it, and I've been there a couple times, it's not Nova Scotia for, for seafood, but you're not in a bad spot to make that transition from Nova Scotia. It's okay. I'm in the crab cake capital, you know. <laughs> My only worry is later this week in Texas. I've looked at the forecast and I think uh, I think me and Schneids might both get kicked out of all three games for the heat factor. You mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, that's a tough <laughs> one. Let, let's hope at least the Rangers come through with some, some good barbecue for the media spread. Uh, Keegan Matheson, MLB.com, Blue Thanks so much, man. You got it, my friend. Take care.
Keegan Matheson, uh, Blue Jays. Dot com. You can follow him for uh, all your updates throughout the series. He's also, he'll be down there uh, in Texas as the Jays continue this road trip. It's three against Baltimore. It's three against Texas. It's three against Miami who are uh, pretty hot as well. Although given the quality of competition they'd faced, I'm maybe not buying that one uh, to the full degree. Baltimore and Texas. Absolutely. Those teams uh, can score a lot of runs. They can out hit the blue Jays for power. We've seen that the Jays are looking for a little bit of power. Maybe our next guests can help them out. Ben Verlander fresh off of a home run, a charity home run derby championship. Uh, will join us next. We'll kind of whip around major league baseball uh, with Ben Verlander as Jays talk plus continues on sports at five ninety, the fan and sports at three sixty. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is usually Shohei Otani's music. We use it instead for our next guest, host of the Flippin' Bats podcast, Fox Sports baseball analyst, fresh off of a home run derby championship in Denver as part of the Healthy Swings event. Ben Verlander, how are you, man? How you feeling after that big championship? <laughs> Sore. Uh, it was a good time. I, it was a it was an awesome event. It was a great day in Denver for sure. Uh, for everything to happen that day. Uh, to fly in, to be there for the event. It was the day of the the NBA Finals game that they ended up winning, and uh, the place was nuts downtown, but I was, like, flying out as it was happening. It was all such a rush. I mean, it was it was a crazy day. It's been a crazy week for you because in addition to that, you got Luisa, uh, Luisa Rise on the show today. Uh, how cool was that? I, I know the batting average has dipped just a little bit right now, but getting to sit down and chop it up with a guy who's hunting 400, um, man, how was Luisa Rise on, on the Flippin' Bats show? Man, I, I really enjoyed him. He is um, he's such a nice guy. Um, obviously, from the outside, just watching him play baseball, it's a blast to watch him hit. It's so different than anything else we see in the league, but to just talk to him and talk to him about hitting, it was, it just was, it was a little refreshing. I'd say to, you know, like I played as well and I love hitting homers and I love hitting balls hard and driving the ball into the gap. And uh, that's kind of the way the game is going, but it was, a, it is a little refreshing to hear somebody like him who, you know, just talks about, and he said, he goes, if a defender's playing me here, I hit it over there. If they're playing me over there, I just hit it over there. And you don't hear anybody talk like that anymore. And to hear him talk like that and just pick his brain about hitting for a while and, and then the trade he went through and all, all that stuff was truly, really fascinating. He's got a, he's, he's a really good dude. He's got an even bigger fan than me now. That's awesome. And you know what you're, what you're laying out there, the kind of hit it where they ain't like it's a, it's a bit of a cliche. And I I do wonder if, you know, as the game gets more powerful and as things like, Hey, batting average on balls in play become more a part of the everyday conversation. If we haven't gone a little too far the other way and Hey, batting average on balls in play can also be a skill. Maybe he's not going to be able to hit 400 on his balls in play every single year, but he's a guy who's hit about 350 on balls in play over the course of his career do you find that to be maybe the the most underrated hitter skill in baseball these days 
Oh, definitely. I, I, I think it's an art to be able to um, sort of hit balls where you want. It, it gets a bit frustrating as, as a player to hear people saying, like, especially when the shift was around or, you know, when I was playing, obviously, in the minor leagues and never made it to the big leagues. But if, if there's a hole on one side of the infield, people just say, well, just hit it over there. Well, it's not easy. These people are throwing 100 miles an hour at you. You're just trying to make hard contact somewhere. So to hear him uh, talk about it, yeah, he might not have he might not have the highest exit velocity in the world. He might not even be in the top, you know, 25, 50 percent of that. But his his strength is being able to hit it where it's pitched, or being able to hit it where he wants really. And if there's if there's a hole somewhere, he's gonna hit it there. And that that is an art form. That is. That is extremely impressive, and uh, that does that doesn't matter if your um, if your exit velocity isn't up there because if you can hit it where they ain't, that's kind of the that's kind of the old saying of baseball: hit it where they ain't. There's there's nine guys out there trying to stop you from getting a hit, and if you can hit it away from them, you're going to have some success. And he's doing that better than everybody this year. Better than everybody hitting 382 right now. He is one of the best stories. In baseball, also one of the best stories in baseball, the Oakland Athletics doing the reverse boycott yesterday. They have this huge crowd out. They raise over eight hundred thousand dollars through that. I know you were tweeting about it a bunch. You weren't there personally, but getting to watch all of that, hearing how loud the crowd was. um, You are we all feeling today? Hey, message sent to Major League Baseball. I certainly felt that way. I mean, I, I, I watched it. I saw the videos coming out. I actually enjoyed the videos from the stands, um, from the upper deck, more than I was enjoying the, the broadcast of it or the, the other sort of videos we were getting. It was just the, the raw footage that we were getting from the upper deck. I, I thought it was so powerful. And it really is. It, it was such a cool um it was such a cool moment and message for everybody to come together the way they did. And I've always sort of been very passionate about the Oakland days fan base. I, I will forever say that of all the, of all the playoff games and world series and atmospheres I've gotten to be in the Oakland Coliseum is, is the loudest. And I, I know I'm, I'm not alone there. Uh, my brother and I have talked about this as well. And, and he would tell you the same thing. Um, and uh, in 06, um, certainly it was extremely loud in 2012. It's just, it's a remarkable atmosphere. It's a re- it's a really, really good fan base that has been really mistreated for a long time. And, uh, they don't want to see their, they don't want to see their team go. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean they're going to show up every single game to a stadium or a team where they're not cared about and, and nor should they be expected to, you know, the, the team, sells off every single good player they get. And then they, they jack up season ticket prices. I mean, they don't want people there. So of course it's going to drive people away, but that doesn't mean they love, they don't love their team anymore. Um, So to to have this moment uh, where they all came together in unison for, for a game is I, I I thought it was really special. I thought it was really cool Uh, message sent loud and clear now, is it going to work? Is John Fisher all of a sudden going to say, you know what? They're right. I should sell the team. 
No, I highly doubt it. <laughs> I doubt that happened. But I do think there was a message sent last night. I hope so. And, you know, Major League Baseball, the Oakland A's aren't the only team that does this kind of stuff. But we saw reporting this morning from Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellich of, of The Athletic that MLB is now maybe looking to curb what teams are allowed to spend on technology, on staff, um, in addition to obviously the, you know, the luxury tax levels and things like that. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know that every owner treating the team like a profit center instead of a, a baseball team and a part of the community uh, is a good thing. So let's, let's transition off Oakland. Let's stay in the AL West though, because you are kind of the Shohei Otani guy. He had two hits in a walk yesterday, no home runs. So, uh, you know, not quite as good of a day as he had Monday with, with a pair of bombs there. Um, when it comes to the angels this year and Shohei Otani, I, I know it's still a little early, but the fact that the angels are actually good and they are on the periphery of the playoff race. Do you think the combination of that and coming off the world baseball classic, like that, like there's a bit of momentum here. Shohei is obviously the, the head of that. He's not alone there, but um, this team, you know, is, is there potential for them to, to have a moment here and not have completely squandered the Shohei trout era? I I sure hope so. You know, I, I think I think every fan of the game of baseball should be in that mindset. Not the mindset of like the A's or the Angels should get in the playoffs and you know, and in place of my my favorite team, insert your favorite team. No, but just the game of baseball as a whole um has we we've been given a disservice over the last 10 years specifically with Mike Trout not being able to be in the playoffs aside for one series and Shohei Otani never being in the playoffs. And these are two of Mike Trout, one of the greatest players of all time. Shohei is certainly one of the most talented players, if not the most talented player the game has ever seen. And we don't get to see him on that big stage in the playoffs. So it would be, it would be great for them to get there. They are playing very good baseball. It's no longer considered early you know we're, we're we're over the third third mark of the season we're approaching a month out of the all-star game like they're they're legitimately at, at this point a good team now they did the same sort of thing last year um i feel like it was right around now they went on that losing streak of like 14 games or 17 games or whatever that was so they have to avoid that that wouldn't be good but yeah i, I just think for the game of baseball having those two guys in the playoffs would be huge and specifically this year for the angels with Shohei. I mean, if you want any sort of chance of keeping that guy on your team, you got to make the playoffs this year. And I think it's a long shot that, that he stays, um, not, not that they make the playoffs. I, I think it is a long shot, but if you want any chance, you got to make the playoffs and prove that, uh, that, that things have changed there. And Hey, at least if you're around the playoff race, come trade deadline, you can maybe stiff arm some of those. You got to trade Shohei conversations because you're close to the playoffs. They're actually selfishly. I'm hoping that's the case because they're here right before the trade deadline. And uh, I missed Shohei when he was through last year. I, I got to make sure uh, I get that one in this year. Shohei has taken his offense to, to yet another level this year, career high in terms of weighted runs created plus, He's already hit 20 bombs and stolen 10 bases. Um, Shohei continues to find ways to improve. Ben, when you look at that Angels team, though, Mike Trout has had a down year by his standards, not a down year by just about anyone else's standards. Um, but have you seen anything within Mike Trout's cold by Mike Trout's standards start to the season that that concerns you at all? Or is it just, you know, an uncharacteristically cool couple of months here for Trout? 
No, I, I don't think I'm concerned about Mike Trout. I, I think what I see is just a. I think his timing's just off right now. I think he's missing heaters that he would normally be hitting. And to me, that doesn't scream a problem of, uh, this is the Mike Trout regression or Trout's getting older and uh, it's a shame we don't get the same Mike Trout anymore. To me, I, I just think his timing's off. And it's not easy to fix that. You know, like, it's easy for people to scream from the rooftops, ah, be on time, hit the ball. But it's not easy to fix it. And you can even know the problem. And you can know you're late on fastballs. You can know your timing's off on things. But it can it, it takes it to click in a game. So I, I, I'm just waiting for that game where Trout goes three for four with a homer and two doubles. And next thing you know, he's off and running and back to being Mike Trout, who's one of the greatest of all time. Uh, so I, I'm not worried. I just see a bit of timing being off. And it's been it's been off for a little while now. Like you said, He's not having a bad year. He's just having a, a, a not Mike Trout like year, you know. It, it, we could say almost a, a similar description now without the the highs and the long track record. But here in Toronto with Vladimir Guerrero Jr., another guy who, by Vlad's standards, is not having a great season. By by average player standards, he he's been pretty good. Is that a similar feeling you have with Vlad? That you know we've talked to a lot of people on the show over the couple of weeks that that feel he's he's close. Is it just a matter of you got to see one or two go over the wall in game before you can turn all of that good process into um, some sustained results when, when it comes to specifically with Vlad, the, the power is what has has kind of eluded him, not necessarily the ability to hit for average. Yeah, that's the thing with Vlad. It, I, I believe it's a bit different with him just because the one thing that's eluding him is is the power swing. I believe he's still hitting over 280 on the year, which is very good. But in a lineup like you have with the Blue Jays, who at the beginning of the year, I was picking the Blue Jays to, to be in the World Series and win the AL East because of how talented they are. And that lineup, I believe, was one of the deepest lineups in the game of baseball, Vladdy being a huge part of that. So when you look at Vladdy right there in the heart and center of the lineup, you know, you don't exactly just want a guy that's hitting 280 with, with a, a bunch of doubles. You want him to be that guy that's going to hit your team 40, 50 homers and right now, he's not that guy that we saw him be a couple of years ago in 2021 where he is an MVP award winner if it weren't for a guy named Shohei Otani <laughs> that year. So I, I think this year, it's still he's still driving the ball. I watch a lot of Blue Jays games. Um, his swing is still there. His timing looks fine. It's just that power swing and, every, and launch angle, for lack of a better term. I know that's the hot word in baseball these days, but – you know, he's just not launching the ball like we saw him doing in 2021. But you have to believe the power is going to come. Where where there's hard contact, the power will come. And uh, I, I still see that with Vladdy. And the Jays could use it. They're a team that struggled a bit with the long ball this year. 12th in home runs, 18th in home run per fly ball rate. And that stands out, especially on a day like yesterday where the Orioles touched them up for four, including a Gunnar Henderson grand slam. Gunnar Henderson, suddenly the, the hottest guy in baseball is him and Corbin Carroll do the rookie sweep of the player of the week awards th this past week. Um, when you look at where the Orioles are at right now, they're 18 games over 500, 
of course, Adley Rutschman had uh, a lot of buzz about him. Gunnar Henderson has had a, a lot of buzz about him. But this is a team that, to me, feels like they're a little early. Um, they're, they're not quite supposed to be this good just yet. Uh, are you kind of all in on, on where the Orioles are? And, and you know, that obviously, when you have that deep a system, that also means you have some chips to trade in if you, if you do want to make a push for it here. Yeah, I'm all in on, on the Orioles team, and I think the majority of people are. I think the the one problem is that I'm not so sure the organization is mm-hmm. yet. You know, like, I I think last year with what they did, uh, that from the you can point to the day Adley Rutschman came up uh, to when the organization turned it around. And, you know, they became sellers at the trade deadline, which – fine um and I, I didn't love the move at the time but it turns out they got you near cano out of the deal who turns out to be one of the most dominant relievers in baseball this year um so they were sellers at the deadline and then the offseason it kind of seemed time like okay well you ended up in the playoff race until the last weekend of the year you had a you ended up having a uh, a season that turned your organization around and put you on the map. And yeah, this team is exciting, ready to go full season of Adley, full season of Gunnar Henderson, Grayson Rodriguez will be up. You have all these names coming up. And then in the off season, they did nothing. And it was extremely frustrating. Um, it was really disappointing as just an outside fan of the game of baseball to see a team that is so ready to compete. Uh, and yeah, you said early, and I, I, I do agree to that to a point. But, you know, it, the time is, is now. And I, I talk to um, on my show, I have John Smoltz on every single week. And he's on every Saturday. And I actually just talked to him yesterday or this Saturday. And we talked about the Orioles and this exact situation we're talking about now. And he said he compares this Orioles team a lot to the Brave, the 1990 Braves team. Where many, they might have been early, but... There, there's a very he, – he really disagrees with the concept of there being this long game and a seven-year plan, and we have this long window ahead. Well, it's baseball, and there's a lot of teams that are going to be very good. And when you have a window of an opportunity to win baseball games and to do some damage and make the playoffs and win a World Series, you have to go for it when you can go for it. If the window's starting to creak open – that is your window. Go for it. So um, I, I, that's kind of my belief with this Orioles team is, yeah, yeah, maybe maybe they were earlier than most people think, but that doesn't mean they're too early to go for it. Like they've clearly shown that they are good enough to win baseball games. So it was frustrating this offseason. I would love to see the Orioles go for it at the trade deadline. I don't know the, the huge names that are going to be out there. I don't think anybody really knows yet. I think that will show itself at the end. I would love to see them add some starting pitching and really go for it because this team is young and exciting, yes, but they deserve to be uh, given an opportunity by their uh, front office and ownership to go win some baseball games. And they are giving the Toronto Blue Jays and the rest of the American League East all sorts of fits uh, so far. Ben Verlander of the Flippin' Bats podcast of Fox Sports. Thanks so much for taking the time out this morning. Uh, best of luck in your future home run derbies as well. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on.
Ben Verlander of the Flippin' Bats podcast. Uh, make sure you check that out all the time. But um, again, that, that John Smoltz conversation about this Baltimore Orioles team uh, coming up this Saturday on that show. That 1991 Braves team, by the way, uh, out of nowhere. So the, the year prior, they had gone 65 and 97, finished sixth in the NL West. The next year, they go 94 and 68. Uh, they win the NLCS in seven over the Pirates. They go on to face the Twins and take them to seven in the World Series. Now, you know how the next year played out they lost to the blue jays in the world series uh as well but hey you don't get many opportunities to make a run like that it'll be interesting to see if the orioles start to get a little bit more aggressive now that they're 18 games over 500 and ostensibly have budget room and have a lot of pieces uh to trade from the toronto blue jays will look to solve those baltimore orioles tonight it's jose brios against kyle bradish uh ben ennis filling in for jeff blair will have you for blair and barker uh, at five o'clock a little later i'm on the call with Ben Shulman. Uh, thanks to Joe Siddle and Keegan Matheson for coming on to Dallas green of Alexa on fire and city and color to Ben Verlander. Uh, thanks to Jeff Lance and Jennifer behind the glass. Again, Blair and Barker in its five to seven slot, but it'll be Ben Ennis alongside Kevin Barker. And then you can uh, check the game out coming up next though, the Jeff Merrick show. And we have a Stanley cup champion, the Las Vegas golden Knights in their sixth year of existence. Uh, excited to listen to the Merrick show. Break all of that down. Jay's talk plus returns 10 a.m. Tomorrow on sports at 590, the fan and sports at 360.